Our passage today is Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of, your, of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. The word of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to continue uh, in the story of your first church, Church in Acts, uh, reading about Peter and John. Lord, would you open this text to us and impress it on our hearts, whatever you would have us learn from it. We love you, and we're excited to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wanted to start today by reading a quote. It's a quote from a sermon and this sermon, some of you might recognize it, but it's actually a pastor's last sermon. All right, so this is a pastor's last sermon, and he did not know it was going to be his last sermon, but he said this. He says, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, like anybody I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing anything. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This is Martin Luther King. This is the last sermon he preached the day before he died and was assassinated. Uh, he had received a bomb threat earlier that day, and so uh, that influenced as he preached. But I just think this is a powerful, powerful sermon, and uh, perhaps providential, uh, because the Lord was calling him to a certain task, right? Uh, King was called to care for the, the poor, the oppressed, people of color. Uh, this was his mission that God had given him, and it cost him everything. God gave him a mission. It was difficult. It was hard. It was costly. So how would anyone be able to kind of walk and live under the strain of that calling, under, under the, the weight of that mission? I mean, if someone threatened your life, like, I don't know about you, but I would be like home crying underneath my sheets, like, stay away. And yet, here we hear in his sermon just boldness for God. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I think King understood something that we all need to understand that uh, is similar to today's passage. That if we're going to be on mission for the Lord, if we're going to do things for the Lord, if we're going to serve him in any capacity, we need uh, to, 
to know God that needs to come out of a relationship with God. We need to be able to see God in his glory and what he can do. And so we see this, uh, kind of this is the big idea for our passage. Our doing for God must come from a deep knowing of God. Our mission for God must come from our relationship with God. Not just knowing about God, oh, there's a God, he's big, he's powerful, but truly knowing God, being in relationship with him and understanding who he is. I think King knew this and it empowered his mission, it empowered his calling. And if we're gonna face any sort of um, uh, a pushback in our mission to, to, to reach our community with the gospel, or even as we go about our daily tasks of ministry here at Cornerstone, as we encounter trials and, and setbacks, we're going to falter if that's entirely on us, if our calling is just, oh, I'm doing this thing for Jesus. Our calling needs to come out of a relationship with God. Our doing for God must come from a deep knowing of God. This is true of Peter and John. The disciples who followed after Jesus, who loved Jesus, I believe their doing for God comes out of a deep knowing of God. And we're going to see that in today's passage because they have encountered threats. They've encountered opposition. uh, They're encountering suffering. And that's really the story of the first church in Acts is just persecution, suffering, opposition, and yet they keep going forward. Jesus called them specifically to share the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, but didn't say this is going to be easy. This is going to be hard. They're going, to, they're going to receive threats. It's going to be difficult. And so they need something to keep them going forward. And that's true of us. Right? As we go about our doings for the Lord, we need something to keep us going. Our, ser- our series is called Outward Church, this idea of, of following the early church in Acts as they go out into the world. And that's meant to be a, an inspiration, a motivation, a model for us. But that can't come from an empty relationship with God. That has to come from a full, uh, thriving, overflowing relationship with God. And so I want to catch us up on the context of our passage today. Catch us up on the background of it that we've been studying uh, kind of before Brian came and preached last week. So the day before uh, uh, this story... Uh, in today's text, so let's just back up like one day in time. Peter and John, they come to the temple for a prayer meeting, and they go through this gate called the, the Beautiful Gate, and there they find a man who's been crippled from birth. He's been crippled for 40 years. He can't walk, and the man asks for, for gold or for money, and instead they say, well, we can't give you gold or silver, but we can give you the healing power of God in Christ Jesus' name. And this man jumps up, and he's healed, and he walks, and he, he like starts shouting, and, and he attracts a huge crowd because <laughs> everyone's like, this guy's been crippled for years, and now suddenly he's healed, and so they want to hear more. And so Peter and John then use this as an opportunity to, to do what? They share the gospel with these crowds saying that Jesus did this, the Jesus uh, that, that died and rose again from the grave. It's in the power of his name. And the people are, are amazed. 5,000 men come to Christ, or even more. That's just the, like the men that came to Christ. So these people are, are converting. They're coming to Jesus. They're convicted. Uh, and uh, although the crowds respond in the way that we want them to respond, the religious leaders, the elite, the, the kind of the rulers, the politicians, the, the, the head honchos of the, the temple, they do not respond positively. In fact, they throw Peter and John in jail. And so that was all the day before. And then this next day, uh, kind of the current day that our passage is set in, they are brought before the Sanhedrin, a ruling council, kind of put on a little bit of a trial. 
And uh, it goes well for them because the, the, the Sanhedrin says, well, you know, we, we want to shut them up, but the crowds love them, and so we can't. And so they say, well, don't teach in Jesus' name. And they say, well, are we going to listen to God or are we going to listen to you? And then they're set free. And then it comes to this passage where they've just had all of that happen, all that persecution, all that suffering, being in jail for Jesus. And then they go to another prayer meeting. <laughs> they go back and they give a report to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And then together, they as a church, pray. They pray together. And it's this beautiful moment where they come together as a church body and focus on the Lord and what he can do. And so we're going to be looking at this passage, and I think as we study this passage, we're going to see that, uh, that it's really a, a moment of uh, refocusing on God, focusing on God as a church community to say, this isn't going to be easy, but we want to know who God is, and we want that to drive us forward. Now, this theme, I've been wrestling with it in my own heart. I just was at the Doctorate of Ministry program last week, and as part of the reading, uh, we read this. Uh, we were reading some of Peter Scazzaro's stuff, Emotionally Healthy Leadership, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Church. And he talks about how your doing for God really not, needs to come out of our being with God. And I was convicted by that. I, I'm convicted as I, as I uh, meditated on this passage this week that so often my doing for God comes out of my doing for God. <laughs> I just want to get things done. Maybe some of you are task-oriented people. You like the checklist. You like to kind of knock things off. And, and like, like, where do you put like being with God? Is that like 6.15 to 6.45 every morning? You're like, I, I was with God this morning. <laughs> but actually, all of life is meant to be drawn out of being with God. We celebrate communion once a month, right? But isn't that supposed to be like what Christianity is every day, every moment? We're just communing with God as we go through our lives. And so I hope that we're all challenged by, by this, that, that we don't wanna just approach Christianity and ministry as a checklist of things that we can do for God. Christianity is an opportunity and being a part of a church is an opportunity to say, no, we want to focus first on knowing God. It's about being in relationship with him and letting that relationship drive us forward. And if you're like me and you've been putting kind of the doing first, then just let's confess that. Let's repent. And let's ask God to first convict our hearts and, and then to help us repent and then help us change. So it's like, uh, you can't really put that on the checklist, like I'm going to change for Jesus. <laughs> like we need God to come into our lives and to change us. And to, and to reorient us from, from doing people to being people who do. Because we want to do. We want to serve. This passage talks about the servants of God. And we're going to see that in the passage. So service is important, but it needs to come out of knowing who God is and being in relationship with him. And so let's look a little bit at what this knowing of God looks like. What does it mean to know God, and how do we see that reflected in our passage today? And I think we see this. We need to know God's sovereignty and God's creative power. See, it doesn't really help to have like this, this abstract idea of a God who just is kind of floating around. Like doesn't, that doesn't really encourage you when the, the going gets tough. You need to know that God is sovereign and that God is in control, that he is the Lord. In the Greek, this word for a sovereign Lord, it's one word in the Greek, and it's the word despotes, despotes. 
Maybe you know what that sounds like in our modern English language. Uh, despot, or despot, I don't even know if I'm saying it right. Despot, that means tyrant in our, in our usage, right? Like to be a despot, you're, you're not really like someone that people admire and like. But in the Greek, that didn't have any negative connotations. It just meant you're the one who's in authority. You're the one who is in charge. Despot in our language makes us think of like Stalin or Hitler or Mao. But in the Bible, no negative connotations. It just means the one who has the authority, the one who has the right to command absolute authority. In our parenting group, we talked about uh, this week, we talked about you being in charge. God has given us as parents authority over our children. We're not in charge because we're bigger than them or better than them or smarter than them. We're simply in charge because God has given us a calling. God has given us authority. And that, that authority sometime, uh, sometimes can be a tyrannical authority if misused. Right? As a parent, I, I, can, I can force things to be my way. I can be a tyrant. Or I can reflect God's authority. God's authority is loving and kind. It's not always easy or gentle. But it's always good and so this is a picture of, of who God is. That we find in our text that God is sovereign. He is Lord. He is powerful. He is really in charge. And if we to look through this passage, we see who God is in charge of. In verse 25, it calls uh, King David God's servant. The phrase like God's servant is used four different times in our passage. If you know King David, his story wasn't always easy. He he loved God and he obeyed God, but he also did some bad things. He made some mistakes. And yet God was sovereign. God used his life. God was in charge. Verse 27 and verse 30 talk about Jesus being God's holy servant. Have you ever thought about that, that Jesus was God's servant? And yet Jesus was God's servant. Yes, Jesus is the one who feeds 5,000, but he's also the one who gets crucified. It's not always easy to follow God's authority, it's not always easy to admit God is in charge, but it's always good. God works his plans through it. Verse 29, Peter and John are praying with the, with the church, and they identify themselves, the church body, as God's servants. They're praying in the midst of persecution, yet they're admitting God is still in charge. God is the one in authority. God is sovereign. God rules over everything. He has absolute authority. And notice, one of the first things they do is they, they root that authority, that, that sovereignty in creation. You made the heavens and the sea and everything in them. It helps to remember God's sovereignty by looking outside ourselves, by looking at creation. And so it talks about, made the heavens and the sea. Uh, God, you made this huge, amazing, wonderful, beautiful universe. And I wanted to kind of stop and just focus for a moment on God's power, how big our God is and, and what God has created. So I have a little bit of a, a visual representation for us tonight. Maybe some of you have watched Louis Giglio's uh, sermon where he talks about the size of the earth in comparison to the sun and some of the biggest stars in the universe. And so Bruce, if you could come up here, I want to give a visual demonstration of the size of our son. Uh, Gabriel, would you want to help me out too? Would you be interested? You want to come up? All right. So this, thank you for my two helpers, uh, Bruce and Gabriel. Uh, so this is the size of our earth, right? Just imagine this is the size of our earth, the size of a golf ball. So I'm going to have you hold this. 
Gabriel. And then uh, Bruce is going to help me measure this out, all right? So um, how, how big do you think I need to go here for the size of the sun in comparison to a golf ball? How many feet? Three feet. All right. We're going to guess three feet. All right. That, that would be pretty. Why don't you hold that in front of the tape measure, uh, the golf ball? And uh, that would be a pretty big sun, right? Uh, but that's not big enough. That's not quite big enough. See, the size of our sun in comparison to the world, to the planet Earth, is 15 feet. <laughs> you want to hold that up, that golf ball? Maybe you can. Get down a little bit. There you go. Look at that. Look at the size of our earth in comparison to the size of our sun. 15 feet. If you were to uh, like put all the different earths inside the sun, if you could pack as many as you could in, you could fit almost a million earths in the size of our sun. God made that. Thank you, Gabriel. Let's give him a round of applause. And Gabriel and Bruce, thank you guys. And guess what? Our sun isn't even that big in comparison to some of the other suns in our galaxy. There's a, there's a sun, a star uh, named Betelgeuse uh, that is the, like, a, I think its circumference uh, would fill the orbit of Mars. So it takes three days to get to the moon, space travel, roughly, and it takes about seven to eight months to get to Mars. If that was all sun, that's the size of Betelgeuse. And the Bible talks about everything being created through Christ Jesus. Everything is created through him. Does it give you like chills? How big and sovereign and powerful our God is. And Peter and John didn't even like have this handy dandy tape measure. They didn't know that. But they knew that God created everything and that he is sovereign and he rules and he has absolute authority. And so... That means, like, even on our worst day of sufferings and setbacks and, and whether it's our own lives or in ministry, like, God is still sovereign. And even on our best days, we're not that big. God is the one who's truly in charge. Our doing for God must come out of a deep knowing of God, his sovereignty and his creative power. So let's keep going. Verses 25 through 27 tell us this, that we also need to know about God. We need to know God's anointed one overcomes. We need to know that God's anointed one overcomes. So they begin to pray. They're praying. Uh, uh, They say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is this messianic psalm. Messiah uh, uh, is this Hebrew word that means anointed one. Anointed one. And so as we see that in today's text, we're seeing that this is a, uh, a Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It talks about the anointed one. And if you, you know, in the Greek, Christ actually means anointed one. So Messiah and Christ are the exact same thing. And so we find here in Psalm 2 this, this kind of retelling of God's goodness and God's power uh, through the Messiah over the nations. How the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. And then the early church, they connect that to their circumstances. They connect that to the happenings of their day in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus the Messiah. 
And so who are those nations that are raging? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, but also the people of Israel and the city. Everyone who crucified Jesus, like they won, right? Like game over. No, actually. God's anointed one overcomes. God's anointed one is powerful. Who is God's anointed one? It's Christ Jesus. The same one that we're still singing about today and we're still praising and we're still worshiping. They even managed to put Jesus to death, and the nations were raging. They they conspired against the Lord, against his anointed one. They put him to death on a cross, and yet even in that moment, they fail. They fail, because Jesus, what does he do? He rises again from the grave. God uses man's worst plans to bring about God's best plans. If we were to go and look at Psalm chapter 2, it's this beautiful psalm, but they also, like, in it, God laughs. <laughs> he, like, it's kind of rude to laugh in someone's face. <laughs> God laughs in the face of these nations that think they have all the power. <laughs> the same Lord who created Beetlejuice and the sun is like, you guys have nothing. Like, did we look at the golf ball and we're like, there, there, there I am. No. We have no power in comparison And the psalm talks about at the end, it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. So there's still this beautiful offering of, yeah, God's going to destroy those that reject him. The psalm talks about that. But there's also a blessing for anyone who takes refuge in him. So this presents you and me with a choice. We We can oppose God's anointed one. We can oppose Jesus or we can welcome him and we can worship him and submit our needs to him. And so this is what we do as a church, as, as believers. We, we come to Jesus and say, we worship you. You are the one who is going to overcome. And this is what it means to know God, to know Jesus, to know the anointed one, God's chosen king. So our doing for God must come out of a deep knowing of God. And we need to, to know Jesus. We need to know that Jesus is Lord, that he's also that sovereign Lord. And, and next, this kind of brings us to verse 28. Uh, we need to know that God turns evil into his good plans. Verse 28 says this. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So talking about Pontius Pilate, uh, talking about Herod, talking about uh, the Gentiles and the Jews that rejected Jesus. They did what, what God determined Now, the ESV talks about God predestining what takes place. Predestination is not a word we use very often uh, uh, here, but uh, the passage talks about, when it means predestined, it means God foreordained. God decided it would be. Ordination is not perhaps a word that we use very often either, but it means God's in charge. If anything happens, it's because God said, it will happen. That doesn't mean that God caused the bad things to happen when those things happen. And it doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our sin. Maybe you're thinking, like, this is like Monopoly, and I just got to get out a free jail card, right? Like, if God's in charge, then I'm not responsible for my sins. Well, Peter actually clarified a couple chapters earlier in Acts chapter 2. That's just not the case. Acts 2, verse 23 says this, This man... So Peter is addressing the crowds at Jerusalem. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan, God's foreknowledge, God's plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So it sounds like they're still responsible for their sin, even though God is in charge. And that's true of us. There's this, there's this tension, this paradox, this mystery there 
And yet we trust God that it is true. That God is in charge, but we're still responsible for the ways that we disobey God. We're still accountable for our sins. And this is why we need Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins. That's part of God's plan too. That God would send a rescuer and that we could then trust in him. So, like, would you rather have a God who is in charge and can use uh, evil, turn it into his good plans? Or would you rather have a God who's not in charge, can't really control anything? Things just happen. I'd rather have a God who can use all things, even things that I think are bad, for his redemptive plans. Because at least he's going to use it for good. Our doing for God has to come out of, like, this 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 deep trust of who God is, that he knows what he's doing, that he is good, and that he is in charge. Because if we don't operate that way, then when things happen, when bad things happen, as they inevitably will, it's going to rock our world. Our, our, our view of God is going to be shaken. We're going to doubt and be afraid. God can turn Evil into good. That's redemptive. That's the, that's the story of the Bible. The, the, the evilness of Christ's crucifixion, like that wasn't a good thing. He was murdered. He was put to death. And yet, God uses this bad moment for our incredible goodness, our salvation, and even offers salvation to those that did it. And if we look at Acts chapter 2, it says like 3,000 people came to Christ that day. They repent. They were cut to the heart. And so our doing for God must come from a deep knowing of God, God's power and his authority. Next, uh, we need to know, just like these disciples, that God hears our prayers and works through them. This is closing out our passage, verses 29 through 31. Now, look at how they are closing their prayer. Verses 29 says this, Now, Lord, consider the threats. (laughs) Consider what those people just threatened us that said to to stop talking about Jesus. Uh, Consider their threats and enable your servants to be safe (laughs) and to, uh, you know, not have anything bad happen to them. That's not what what he says. He says, uh, says, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Wow, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So what does Peter and John, the believers, pray for? They don't pray for safety. They don't pray for refuge. They just pray, Lord, if, the, if there's, there's fear in this situation, like we're feeling fear or whatever we're feeling, Lord, help us just to speak boldly. Let's look past those threats. Let's, let's look at who God is, his sovereignty, his power, that he uses all things, even bad things, for good. And let's keep going. Let's be bold for Jesus. And then they pray for signs and wonders. That's like the icing on the cake. Lord Jesus, would you perform miracles through us so that people can see even now that you are the creator God, that you are the one who is in charge. I wanted to kind of ask a a challenging question. What if we're praying in a certain way and the way we're praying is actually keeping us from knowing God deeply? What if the way that we are praying is actually keeping us from fully experiencing God because we pray for things like safety and security, what if, what if God grants us that? <laughs> and that actually prevents us from knowing his goodness in the midst of trial and suffering. See, it's those moments of hardness and difficulty that, that we either fall, falter, or we, 
or we press into the king. We press into the savior. We press into the one who is in charge. And so I, I don't think it's wrong to pray for safety or for security or for health or any of those things, but I think we need to pray for God's presence, for boldness, for Jesus, and to pray for, for God to be in our midst and to experience him as we put ourselves on the line, as we risk ourselves so that we can see God come through. And so I think prayer can be even better. We need to pray big. And I, I, th- I don't think it's wrong to pray for signs and wonders. I, this week I was like, man, that would sure help here in Westford. If we could get some signs and wonders, some miracles performed, God can do that. Like he can. I don't believe God is not performing signs and miracles. You hear about it in places all the time around the globe. As the gospel is spread, God says, here's a miracle. This helps affirm your message. I'm going to start praying that God would perform some miracles here, that it would somehow uh, uh, break through the kind of the culture of Westford, the culture of New England, and they would see like, wow, this, there's something supernatural to what this little church on Graniteville Road has, what the people there are doing. There's something about it that transcends like our reality, what we know. And I love, they say, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, it was all about them getting to know the one who was really in charge, Jesus. And so if the Lord grants us signs and wonders here at Cornerstone, we've got to be very clear, it is because Jesus has done it. It's because Jesus has done it through his power. We want to give him all the credit. It's through his name. It's not to further us. It's not to grow our little kingdoms. It's to grow Christ and his kingdom. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Several places in the scripture where when God's presence comes, it's like the earth shakes. And we see that room, like God comes and just his presence fills it, and the room shakes. So they are experiencing God and his presence. And that's what we need to drive us forward as Christians, as believers, and as a church we stay on mission for God by staying in relationship with him, by experiencing him, by, by being filled with his fullness. Our doing for God must come from a deep knowing of who God is. If your doing for God is not coming from a deep knowing of him, I want to give you a chance to repent. To say, I'm sorry, Lord, I want to change. I want my doing for God to be just at, from a deep knowing of you from being in relationship with you. That's what I want, and I need God to change me. It's so easy to prioritize doing over being and over knowing. And yet God calls us to just know him, to walk with him. So I'm gonna pray, and uh, if that's you, uh, you know, uh, pray with me. Pray with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what are doing for You come out of a deep knowing of you. Lord Jesus, we confess that it is so easy to simply do for you, to not know you. So Lord, I want us to keep us all of our eyes shut, every one of us, Worship team, everyone, have your eyes shut. And if, 
And if you feel like you have been operating out of doing instead of knowing, do you raise your hand? I'm not even going to look. Just raise your hand and admit, God, I need to know you. I want my knowing for you to drive my doing. All right, you can put your hands down. Lord, transform us. Change us. Change us from the inside out. Give us a real relationship with you and drive our doing just by simply being in relationship with Christ Jesus. Please bless our offering. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.